0: Hi everyone, my name is Anthony Greco, and I'm the Director of Exhibits and Interpretive Planning at the Buffalo History Museum. Now, if you've passed by the museum lately, you may have seen a large neon sign displayed on the building's portico. The sign spells out the name Nancy Bowen, an indigenous woman who was the defendant in an issue-laden 1930 murder trial. The sign's part of an installation at the museum by renowned Seneca artist, Marie Watt. It's meant to draw attention to the Bowen case. Not to relitigate the trial, but rather to inspire people to better understand the issues of indigenous sovereignty which arose from the trial, as well as the stereotypes and biased coverage which appeared in the daily papers. On March 6, 1930, a young boy came home from school only to find his mother's body laying lifeless on the floor of their Buffalo home. Panicked, he ran to find his father at work and tell him what he'd seen. After discovering wounds on the body, the medical examiner determined that the woman, Clotilde Marchand, had been the victim of foul play. Two women, Lila Jimerson and Nancy Bowen, both indigenous, became immediate suspects and were arrested in their homes on the Cattaraugus Reservation, and within only weeks became defendants in a murder trial that would dominate the press for over a year. The case gained immediate notoriety. Not solely for the act which had been committed, but for the circumstances surrounding it. You see, this was not a clear-cut case of who'd done it. There was, in fact, much more to the story. The victim, Clotilde Marchand's husband, was 53-year-old Henri Marchand. Henri, or Henry, was a French sculptor, highly skilled, and had trained under Rodin. He had come to Buffalo with his family in 1925, in order to work at the Buffalo Museum of Science, where he made intricately sculpted figures and dioramas. As part of his work, he sketched from live indigenous models. He often traveled to the nearby Cattaraugus Reservation, where he would draw his subjects and later sculpt their likeness. However, Henry often did much more than sculpt or sketch his female models. Marchand had numerous sexual encounters with the indigenous women whose figures he sculpted. One of his affairs was with Lila Jimerson, and had lasted nearly two years. The role that Henri and Lila's relationship played in the murder of Clotilde is at the heart of this issue-laden trial, as are issues of sovereignty, racism, cultural differences, and salacious media coverage. This case is incredibly complex, so to help us tell it, we brought in a special guest, Dr. Joe Stallman. Joe is a scholar and researcher of Tuscarora descent and currently serves as the director of the Seneca Iroquois National Museum in nearby Salamanca. Joe has over 20 years of research experience working with First Peoples. His research focuses on culture and history, as well as ongoing socioeconomic and health and wellness-related endeavors with Native communities. So thank you, Joe, for taking some time out of your day to come and speak with us.
1: You're welcome, Tony, and thank you for having me.
0: Recently, the museum debuted an exhibit called Haudenosaunee Resurgence, Marie Watt, Calling Back, Calling Forward. The installation features a number of works from Seneca artist Marie Watt. Now, in the planning process of this exhibition, you brought to our attention the name Nancy Bowen. It was a name I think few of us were familiar with. However, her story fit the goal of the exhibition well, the concept of taking a look back at history and shedding light on elements that have not really been properly told, and one feature of the exhibit became uh, the design and fabrication of a 24-foot neon sign which adorns the museum's portico, a sign which has many people asking just who Nancy Bowen was and why her name demands this attention. As we learned uh, by you presenting her story to us, Nancy's uh, story is both incredibly complicated as well as incredibly important. So today we're pleased that you're able to be with us and to help us share this important story with our viewers. So I think we just need to start with the basics. Uh, Who was Nancy Bowen and why is her story so important for us to discuss?
1: Tony, Nancy Bowen was a 65-year-old Cayuga woman from Cattaraugus who was a herbalist. Uh, She was implicated in a murder of a French woman here in Buffalo in 1930. Uh, Within 24 hours, uh, Nancy Bowen and another Cayuga woman from Cattaraugus, Lila Jemerson, were arrested. Immediately, the story made headlines in Buffalo, but also nationally when uh, Indigenous women were connected to it. And so, uh, on the surface, it looks like, uh, you know, these two ladies are guilty of murdering this uh, innocent French woman. However, when you take a deeper dive into this story, I saw something else, and I I just kept looking. Uh, You know, when I came, when I learned about this story, I learned about it through scholarship. And this case uh, resonated with uh, Indigenous scholars and activists because it really uh, revolved around this idea of sovereignty and Indigenous sovereignty and cultural difference. There's a lot of elements in this story that I thought that should be discussed. And so for me, uh, just exploring, I just I started taking photos of all of the newspaper clippings, the ones that I found most important. And then very quickly, I realized that I had over 200 uh, photos taken. And so I tried to organize all of this information into some kind of a presentation so I can kind of look at it visually and so, Tony, as I was working through, I noticed uh, there were a number of categories that a lot of these newspaper stories falling, started falling into. And so, on the onset, what I saw was how the newspapers set up the guilt of the two ladies. And so, for me, reading through this, I, I felt most, most of my empathy fell with Nancy Bowen. She was 65 years old. Her husband had just died. And then Lila tells her that Henry's
0: wife uh, possibly killed her husband. So, yeah, let's expand upon that for a second. So what were the events that brought about this um, attack on on Henry's wife, Clotilde?
1: Uh, Let me give you a little bit more about Henry. So Henry, he's known for his philandering ways Uh, his colleagues say, oh, that's normal Henry, right? They kind of give him that out. But, you know, in the court case, Henry does admit to having countless uh, lovers. And uh, Lila was just one of them. And he he even stated that he had no no feelings for her. Whereas Lila was a young, uh, beautiful Cayuga woman living in a rural area who always dreamed of getting out. And Henry was that ticket. And I do believe that Henry knew that, and he used it to his advantage to get what he wanted from Lila. And so while, you know, we have this relationship going on, Henry also has this life as an artist. And he, you know, he had the audacity to tell his uh, co-workers and colleagues that he had to make love to these women in order for, uh, for them to fully express themselves. That was his
0: duty as an artist. Mm-hmm. I'm paraphrasing. Right. And, and, and I recall from looking at articles in the newspaper from the 1930s as well that, you know, he said something along the lines of there was no way of knowing how many, pe- how many women he had been with. Yeah. He, t- he, he, he showed no shame in, in the behavior that he had taken with them. That's right.
1: And so Lila, you know, uh, Henry was her out. And when she kind of realized that Henry was never going to leave his wife. Uh, she took it upon herself to uh, make
0: sure that Colteal, uh didn't live. So a couple of the the names that get applied to this, they're sensationalized names, of course, but this, you know, getting back to the media coverage of it, this hits all the local papers. It hits papers across the country. It also mm-hmm. gets covered in Time Magazine, Reader's Digest, ultimately, years later, does a, uh, a story about it. And a couple of the names that are applied to it are the Ouija board murder case. Yes. And of course, that's applied to it. So we're going to get readers. But that also fits in, um, you know, applying that sort of sensationalized media coverage to it to the papers during the 1930s. What are the types of things that the newspapers were doing at this time? Uh, you know, how were they presenting it to the public at this time?
1: Well, they would do it in a number of ways. So when they were talking about the murder itself, Tony, they would always say something like, Two squaws kill a lady or woman duped by witch, magic, loss, slews, innocent person. Uh, even in some of the newspaper stories, you will even see storyboards of how the murder took place, which is kind of comical, but you know, this is pre-television, and so the newspapers are trying to act as that media to, to step the, the reader through the murder.
0: So, so as the story goes, uh, at least at it- how it was presented in the media, Nancy Bowen had received letters from an alleged medium or psychic from I think it was Cleveland, saying that this quote white witch Clotilde Marchand, this French woman living in Buffalo, had done magic which caused the death of of Nancy's husband Charlie as well as other people in her community, and it would continue on unless she did something about it. That's right,
1: and so that's the duty of a uh, of a do gooder, right? Uh, because someone who is a witch is someone possessed, and it's our responsibility to uh, free that person from the possession. And so what, um, what Nancy did was an act of murder, maybe with uh, intention of some kind of revenge, because uh, it was stated that Colt Tilde was the one who killed her husband, right? However, it is her responsibility as an indigenous person to uh, dispatch the person who is possessed.
0: So with that belief system, uh, there's, there's other examples of, of this type of behavior in relatively recent history, looking back just in local history, thinking back to there's cases with corn planter and red jacket that involve quote, witchcraft as well, right?
1: Yes. Uh, so witchcraft is a very common occurrence in uh, recorded history between the West and the Seneca, especially the last 200 years. Uh, so you're, you're absolutely correct. So uh, there's a story of corn planter where he had three of his sons kill a witch. Uh, Some people speculated that it was just uh, someone who disagreed with him. But he told his sons that this witch killed their sister.
0: And so uh, they banded together and they uh, killed her. So back to the Bowen case for a moment. Lila and Nancy. So Lila, or potentially Henry, or excuse me, Henry was behind this entire thing. So they essentially play upon Nancy's religious beliefs to manipulate her into committing this act. Right. So the day of the crime, they travel into Buffalo. And if I remember correctly from the newspaper reports, you had, they go by Marshawn's house. And I think at that point you had Lila allegedly call Henry and they go for a ride in in his automobile. Yes. Uh, Henry loved
1: giving Lila a ride in the car and Lila loved it. And so Henry just assumed, well, the story goes, right? Uh, Henry just assumed Lila was in town for a ride. And so he went and gave her a ride. However, you know, we're not really allowed to speculate too much, but there is something fishy about this. Uh, It's just really too convenient for Lila and Henry to be gone without this suspicion while Nancy's
0: alone. And they happen to return right after the deed is done. Right. And Henry goes back to work, and that's where his son finds him when the son discovers the body. So you mentioned earlier the problematic issues of this case revolve around, A, the conflicting belief systems, but also the issues of um, sovereignty. So what happened once Nancy and Lila were arrested? Well, actually, the violation of sovereignty happened when the police
1: went out there to arrest them. That's the first act of breaking that sovereignty. Uh, they should have notified the Seneca Nation president and the council of their intentions and asked for permission to trespass on nation lands, which they did not. And it got me thinking because uh, I need to reinvestigate a little bit because it makes me wonder if it was Buffalo officials driving all the way out to Cattaraugus And so they're even outside of their own legal jurisdiction. Yeah, I just don't know anymore if the state police was part of this at that point. Because they were so quick.
0: Right. Yeah, the, the justice system moved very speedily on this. And I think the trial ended up starting within only a couple weeks of- Two the, weeks, uh, right? Two yes. weeks of the arrest, sure. Um, but beyond um, just going onto the reservation, their territory to to arrest Lila and Nancy, you know, once they were in custody, and mind you, if I recall properly, they did not arrest Henry. He was, I think, a, a material witness, but he wasn't a suspect-
1: Originally, he wasn't, but he did become one uh, pretty soon after. And it seems like it was Henry who uh, identified Lila, and that's the reason why the police, uh, the authorities, went out to
0: Cataragas. Now, back at the crime scene, Clotilde's body was found, and it was determined that she had been struck in the head by a hammer. And right away, once they uh, arrested Nancy, she admitted that she had committed the crime. She went on to tell authorities that she had purchased what she called a, quote, 10-set hammer on the way into town and later thrown it into a creek. And now the police then took this information and used that as a justification for trespassing upon the reservation so that they could perform searches for the alleged murder weapon. Exactly. So this is the second
1: violation of sovereignty, right? Um, Once again, they did not uh, contact Seneca Nation president or the council, and they just went on and did their own searches.
0: We discussed a few minutes ago that Nancy had an authentic belief in witchcraft, and according to that belief system, her actions were justified. However, at this point in the investigation, prosecutors take it upon themselves to again travel on to the reservation, but this time, it's to exhume the body of Nancy's recently deceased husband, Charlie. And they did this out of pure speculation that perhaps Nancy had taken his life as well while maybe trying to rid him of evil spirits. Yes. Yes.
1: So this is the third time, right? And so this time the press came along with them. And so when they um, exhumed um, Charlie Bowen, they showed all of the grave goods in the newspaper that evening. Uh, Very insensitive, uh, sensationalizing the whole Indian lore, hex, black magic kind of traits when they're just regular grave goods that you would give someone
0: on a journey in their afterlife. And to be clear, we're not implying that the reservation would have been safe territory for these women to travel to and face no repercussions for what they had done, We're simply stating that there were proper channels which should have been followed, which were trampled upon by uh, investigators. and uh, um, police Exactly.
1: Force. And uh, that's one of the shames of this case because it just shows you the lack of knowledge and the insensitivities of New Yorkers of the day. Uh, thinking that uh, indigenous people were these uh, assimilated Americans who were just like them with the same amount of rights uh, and without any uh, uh, real difference between the two uh, communities, when in fact there is. There's quite a bit of difference um, in terms of government, sovereignty, and even national identity. And, uh, you know, New Yorkers really did believe that this idea of assimilation was uh, working. And that's one of the amazing pieces about this case is that uh, it was kind of an eye opener for uh, the 20th century to realize that there were people very distinctive from themselves living a life with uh, cultural behaviors and practices that were quite exotic to their own.
0: Right. So to to back up and to give a little bit of context uh, regarding local history, so the Buffalo Creek Reservation, early 19th century, butted right up against the village of Buffalo Creek. So you had two cultures really right next to each other. Yes. And so if we fast forward 130 years into the future, back er, going toward 1930, just as you said, there's this expectation among many people living in Buffalo that because over a century had passed that the local indigenous people were essentially just like us, just like um, the white people who had come here to settle. And obviously this was not the case. And, and this traditional belief system, though not, I don't think, universally practiced among the Haudenosaunee people. Many of them did and authentically believed this. So I'm looking at my my laptop right now. I've got a couple of newspaper headlines pulled up. One of them is from the Minneapolis Star. So, I mean, that alone shows you that this attracted national coverage, just not local coverage. So the headline here, and it's a full page dedicated to this, and it says, Black Magic Still Haunts the World. And it's got these sketches of these kind of um, primitive you know, people performing rituals and things. Um, you know, just as the world is fascinated by true crime and ghost shows and haunting shows to still appeal it appealed to people back then as well. Mm-hmm. There's another headline from the St. Louis uh Post Dispatch from March of 1930 that says on magic and Indian witchcraft. And these are not small articles. These are full page articles. Uh,
1: you know, uh, part of this is uh trying to sell a paper as well, right? We tend to forget that that these uh, these newspapers are businesses, and their whole uh, uh, game here is to make uh, money through the news that they sell. And so they have to keep it fresh, they have to keep it sensational in order to keep people buying the paper.
0: We can come back to the media coverage in just a few minutes, but I wanted to take just a few moments to focus on the actual court proceedings. Once again, the trial started very quickly, extremely quickly, and today we see these very lengthy delays between someone's arrest, their arraignment, and their ultimate trial, but that was not the case here. Lila and Nancy were put on trial within only two weeks, and they were tried together rather than separately, and, and while all this is going on, Lila was in failing health.
1: Lila suffers from TB, and before the murder, Lila started to get sick, and she needed help. And so Henry started to help her with medicine and medications, taking her to the uh, doctor, uh, promising her to take her to like these health sanitariums, you know, to rest and recover. And they even go to one once. And she kind of counts on Henry and she's, you know, he is her ticket and he's also her ticket to getting quality health care. Uh, What a lot of people don't know is that the Seneca Nation didn't have a health care center until the 1970s, whereas most indigenous communities, uh, when they traded land for certain services, medical was part of that, but not in the early stages because the first treaties were done here. And so as a result, uh, medical and education and those other elements that you see in, uh, in treaties aren't in this one.
0: So during the trial, Lila was sick, and her health took a turn for the worse. Now, at one point, her health got so bad that she had to be hospitalized, and while there, she offered a guilty plea. However, soon after, she reversed that decision and withdrew the plea. And after all this, the judge declared a mistrial. So now the courts had no intention of letting this crime go unpunished. They intended to begin a second trial within short order so that Someone could be brought to justice for the murder of Clotilde. but a year passed between the first and second trial during which time the press continued to cover the story and in the second trial, Nancy and Lila were tried separately yes,
1: so uh Lila had a um i believe an embolism in her lung maybe uh and so she collapsed in court uh they took her to the hospital as soon as they realized what happened to her. The judge declared a mistrial, and uh, it's described that she weakly admitted guilt because she wanted this to be done. However, uh, a couple things that stood out, uh, a lot of legal experts started to take notice. Uh, The U.S. attorney, Teppleton, was still part of the case. It was his federal obligation to make sure that they had a fair trial. But Lila started looking at other attorneys, Well, at least her supporters did. And I believe it was either uh, Alice Jemerson or um, Clinton Rickard, but they got the attention of Charles Darrow to take a look at the case. And he actually came up here and he he considered it, but he dismissed that idea because it didn't really uh, play into uh, representing the law. It was just a murder case.
0: Right. And I I recall they also reached out to... The vice president of the United States, because I believe he had indigenous blood. That's
1: right. And so uh, what a lot of people don't realize is that uh, they've been calling uh, Kamala Harris the first vice president of color, when in fact, in 1930, uh, Charles Curtis was a enrolled Kaw Indian who's from Kansas. And very quickly, the newspaper started to point out his uh, identity and started to use it against him to see if he was actually going to defend these two squaws.
0: So ultimately, Darrow doesn't get involved. Curtis doesn't get involved. But I think the the point of talking about this is to understand the substantial legal defense that the indigenous community uh, attempted to and then ultimately mounted for these two women. There were accounts throughout the newspapers of the indigenous people crowding into the hallways of the courtroom. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if anything, I think that was seen as a victory for, for the local indigenous.
1: Oh, yes, it was. However, uh, in the newspapers, uh, they would talk about uh, the crowds showing up in a very negative way. So this was one of the first court cases in Buffalo where they had armed security in the courtrooms because uh, the Indians were there. Uh, There were fears of violent reprisals or some kind of violent outburst.
0: So, Joe, why exactly was this case so important to the Haudenosaunee? This case is really important,
1: not only because of the exposure of the Seneca community and the Haudenosaunee community, but for the communities themselves, they saw this as another attack on their sovereignty, because what a lot of Americans don't understand is that, Since 1784, there has been countless attempts to assimilate indigenous peoples into the American system. And all across the country, these communities have resisted that because uh, in their eyes, they had a holistic culture that gave them everything that they need. And so communities like the Seneca and the other Haudenosaunee inside of New York State are always on guard because this has been a constant Uh, not only between the feds, but also with New York State. Um, You know, this is an early battleground for state and federal rights. And the state and feds very early on at the creation of this country wanted Haudenosaunee lands. And so uh, they have always had their eyes set on that. And the remaining lands held here are held quite uh, endeared. They're they're held on to. They're not going to be let go. And so for the communities to simply see this as a simple murder case is not so simple because this is uh, very easily a stepping stone to another uh, set of uh, rights lost to this
0: gigantic machine that we call the United States, right? In getting back to the media coverage of the trial for a moment, the newspapers nationwide were portraying Lila and Nancy as these primitive or savage and unrefined criminals. However, at the same time, they were showing Henri Marchand in a very different light. How was Henry's character portrayed to the public? The media loved Henry.
1: Uh, You know, he's handsome. He's uh, French. He's a sculptor. He's a kind of a local celebrity. You know, he's known uh, not only in this area, but, you know, across the country and other parts of the world. And so uh, people have an affinity towards Henry. And so when he does go to jail, um, he's never portrayed in a negative light. Uh, there's all of these photos where he's sculpting some something in behind the iron bars, you know, and he looks so... Uh, regal and just in his artist mode, whereas Lila is portrayed as, uh, let me read this, this is one of my uh, favorite uh, quotes by the newspaper, she is like a beaten, trapped, dumb creature of her native forest, and so those are the types of comparisons that we have, and there's even a time where Henry's family comes to court, and there's, it's a photo op, It it becomes a photo op for all of the newspapers. And we don't see anything like that with Lila's family. Uh, there uh, There is one edition of the newspaper where you do see photos of Lila's mom and dad. But there's two photos stitched together where it looks like there's no affection. There's no love between the two people. Whereas Henry is portrayed as a loving father. And these just play into the subconscious tropes that we all have about other peoples, even though we might say them or not. And so as a result, I feel like these comparisons really did continue to lead readers to a conclusion that these two women only committed murder for the sake of murder.
0: So despite the fact that the the justice system wanted there to be a speedy trial, the first trial is, was declared a mistrial, and they want to get the second one wrapped up right away. But there's a significant amount of time. It's, uh, I believe, almost a year before mm-hmm. the second trial begins. So during that time, was there much media coverage of this trial? How did uh, did, the, did the media still try and take advantage of this really salacious story?
1: Of course, you know, uh, it was unresolved. However, the world moves on very quickly in our new 24-hour news world. And even back then in 1930. And so the newspapers would do a number of things of trying to keep this case in the newspapers. Uh, they would uh, bring up old cases that happened in the region where you had indigenous people murdering other indigenous peoples or, you know, instances where you have indigenous on indigenous violence or indigenous on white violence. And these uh, these cases would be highlighted and uh You know, they're doing it to keep attention on the case, but what they might not be realizing is they're coloring indigenous people as violent, and violence is
0: just part of their culture. Joe, fast-forwarding to the beginning of the second trial in early 1931, what was the defense strategy put up on behalf of Lila and Nancy? How were they arguing that she was not guilty or lacked the mens rea, the mindset, to be fully culpable for this crime?
1: with Nancy. What the defense did was uh, to talk about her cultural difference. And so they even went so far to bring in uh, a very famous Seneca anthropologist by the name of Arthur C. Parker. Arthur C. Parker was probably one of the most well-known uh, historian-slash-anthropologist in the state of the, at the time. His uh, testimony is most interesting because he does approach it as an anthropologist and you know, very matter of factly, he does describe these cultural practices as being very normal and uh, uh, accepted within the culture. And it makes it very difficult for a uh, non native, uh, an all non native jury, uh, judge, prosecuting team to convict someone of something that is not even in their uh, worldview. So, Tony, there's another person that I would like to bring up, and uh, this person, her name was uh, Alice Lee Jemison. She was a uh, Cattaraugus Seneca uh, reporter, activist. Uh, she spent the, a good part of the 30s and 40s uh, working for indigenous nations. She did a lot for the Indian Reorganization Act that took place during that decade, uh, she was always bringing sovereignty issues to the forefront, uh, has a lobbyist, but also has a writer in newspapers. And in this case, she was really uh, instrumental in making sure that these two ladies had a voice. Uh, she served as uh, a kind of a conduit between uh, other supporters like Arthur Parker, uh, Clinton Rickard, and even Seneca Nation president uh, Ray Jimerson. And she's really uh, important here. But one of the things about the newspapers, every time that they put her in with one of her editorials, they, uh, they had an editorial front piece where they would quickly dismiss her by calling her girl or Indian girl or Indian squall rights paper. And so, you know, they do try to dismiss her. But if you really if people got beyond that and got into her words, uh, they really found some deep thought there.
0: So once all the witnesses had been called uh, to testify, uh, it, it wasn't a very lengthy trial. What was the outcome? How did the jury find for for Lila and for Nancy?
1: Yeah, you're right. Uh, this, the second trial, once again, not very long. And so uh, Nancy Bowen was released with time served, and then Lila was acquitted. And uh, Lila kind of just kind of disappears into the background. Uh, Henry uh, remarries, uh, he's not really invited to the second case because at at this time, I believe he married a, uh, 18 year old niece. And so, you know, that wouldn't look good for the prosecution to have him come because it would just support a lot of what the defense has been saying all along about Henry. However, you know, looking at the newspapers and just following along with that thread, it's really difficult for, uh, Buffalonians to keep an interest in a case like this because, uh, for me, going through these newspapers, I was really interested with all of the stories going on. There are so many threads here that are kind of just entangled in this uh,
0: in this one story. Joe, regarding Nancy's verdict. Uh, She was adjudicated guilty on the charge of, I believe, second-degree manslaughter, but you stated that she was released with no additional jail time other than the time she had already spent in prison between the time of her uh, initial arrest and the time of the verdict. How do you read into that in terms of what the jury, uh, which would have been all white and all male, was thinking at the time?
1: Well, first of all, she's a 65-year-old lady, or 66 at the time of this second case, And I don't think it would look good for the state trying to prosecute this elderly indigenous woman who who looks uh, not like anyone. You know, she has a a scarf over her head and she wears a sweater and she doesn't look like someone you want to throw in prison.
0: But do you believe that there was at least some degree of understanding among the jury exactly what role uh, Henri may have had in manipulating these two women into committing this crime?
1: Uh, there's been a lot of speculation on that, and from my reading of it, I would have to agree with you and the writers who have talked about this. But I, 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 I I'm speculating along with everyone else because Henry is painted as kind of a dastardly kind of a fellow, you know. Uh, there's even court, uh, there's even testimony that shows up in the newspaper where Lila talks about him basically date raping her in his car, and she uh, calls him. Uh, a caveman using caveman tactics on her. And then even in the same newspaper, like a week later, they do another storyboard of how to be a gentleman. And one of the, the bad, for the, uh, for the inappropriate behavior, it says, uh, don't act like a caveman. So I think people are paying attention here. You know, there's a lot of voices in the newspaper and not all of them are racist. And some of them are seeing some of the inconsistencies Uh, between the justice system and what's being played out in the press.
0: So throughout the trial, we've established that there's absolutely no shortage of sensationalized coverage of Bowen in the papers. But if we zoom out for a second, how does the coverage of this trial mesh with the larger national coverage that indigenous people at this time received in the press?
1: So actually, one of the things going on during the first trial is that there's a bill in uh, in Congress called the Sneed Bill, and that bill would actually take away the remaining sovereignty that the nations held, and so communities would end up in the in, in the newspapers that way, or they would end up through other uh, acts, uh, usually acts of uh, murder mayhem. You know crimes.
0: So the history of, or, or or the you know the the indigenous community here was largely forgotten about in the media, unless it was something this sensational story or, or something big that happened. They weren't represented on the on the daily with you know. Oh, not at all, not at all.
1: And if they were, it's always colored by colored terms, Uh, a little bit of uh, slander. You know, Indians, uh, angry Indians. Uh, Indians meet for a powwow. You know, these are just typical headline type of things that you would see in the newspapers.
0: Now, I've studied local history for a number of years and have read my fair share of indigenous history as well, but had never come across this case. I, I simply wasn't aware of it until you brought it to my attention, nor had many of my colleagues heard of it. But once you read about it, you have to take a step back and say, How did I not know about this? Um, There's the murder mystery appeal to it, which is why it ultimately gets covered in Reader's Digest back in, I think, the 60s. And there's articles in Time Magazine about it, of course. But there's also so much to learn from it with regard to the larger history of indigenous people. So I guess my question is, how well known is this case uh, among the Haudenosaunee? Um,
1: Nancy and Lila aren't well known. Uh, especially in the communities, whenever I bring up the, the stories, uh, people are like, I heard something about that. But no one really knows much about it anymore. Um, within uh, my scholarly circles, a few people know, but not too many. Um, I just took interest in it a long time ago because I'm interested in witches. I like witch cases. Uh, there's usually much more uh, behind the scenes than what's being said up front. And so I, I took a special interest with this one. And then when I took uh, the role as director at the Seneca Iroquois National Museum, um, my collections manager one day said, hey, I have a Nancy Bowen basket. And so uh, I knew who Nancy was, and so I took an interest in it. And I, uh, my collections manager said that um, it, uh, Nancy made it for uh, her lawyer Uh, My collections manager was wrong. Uh, Nancy actually made it for Clinton Rickard for his activism. And all she did was make a simple ash basket, uh, rectangle, not too big. And uh, this was uh, her appreciation for everything that he did during this time. Because he did a lot of work. He did a lot of stumping. He went all over. He went to DC. He found, he got the Attorney General Templeton involved in the case. And so for me, having that basket in our collections is pretty, it's it's something special for us. Uh, You know, uh, as more people will learn about this story, they will realize how important and how special this basket is.
0: One last question before we end our discussion today. Joe, what do you feel that guests of the museum or listeners to our podcast can learn or take away by better understanding the case of Nancy Bowen?
1: For me, uh, a case like this is really important because not only does it uh, negatively uh, affect indigenous peoples, it really affects all peoples. It keeps stereotypes alive. It keeps those, uh, those fissures between communities going And it's just unhealthy. It's an an unhealthy way to live. And so for me, I know other scholars have talked about these things over time. And some of these stories may seem like, yeah, I've heard it before. But for me, these are teaching moments. These are teaching moments for all of us to remember that history isn't the past. It reoccurs if we don't learn from it. And that is, I know it sounds cliche, but it is a truth, Tony. Because there's a lot of parallels from what's going on in 1930 with what's going on here in the last two years. And so for me, you know, when you see something show up in the news, just don't take the side of the press or the prosecutor or the authorities. There's always much more going on. And this case really does show the reader or the person interested that there's a lot of layers to the story and those who might be guilty
0: aren't that guilty. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Joe Stallman from the Seneca Iroquois National Museum in Salamanca for stopping by and speaking with us today and helping us with this episode. His museum, which is a brand new, beautiful facility, is only a short drive from Buffalo and makes for a great day trip for families. And I strongly encourage you to visit. The Buffalo History Museum podcast is sponsored by the National Endowment for the Humanities. The museum receives operating support from Erie County, the city of Buffalo, the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by m and Bank and from our donors, members, and friends. As always, be sure to rate, review, and tell your friends about the show. Have a great week, and we will be back soon.